0: Welcome to Blitzcast, an NFL draft podcast brought to you by NFLDraftBlitz.com. And now, your hosts, Alex Kavtov and Ed Hunt.
1: Welcome to another episode of Blitzcast, and we're going to start this week off with the Cowboys. They got some bad news on Sunday. Their best player, quarterback Dak Prescott, suffered a compound fracture and dislocation of his right ankle on a design QB draw. He underwent surgery on the ankle Sunday evening. His season is over. Ed, that was a gruesome looking injury.
2: Yeah, it, it, it was pretty gruesome. And you know what? I, I just, you have to feel for Dak Prescott. I mean, especially, you know, with what was going on with his contract situation.
1: What's going to happen now? I mean, let's speculate. Obviously, you mentioned it. He was... On a franchise tag, and and the Cowboys and him weren't able to agree to a long-term contract that he was asking for. Now we don't know what's going to happen. He's obviously going to come back from this injury. It's a high ankle sprain, but how much money can the Cowboys invest in Dak Prescott?
2: I fully expect him to come back, but you know, I mean, he was he was you know he had an opportunity to sign for uh, you know just tons of money uh you know in the sense that I mean he he was going to get you know a 40 45 million dollar co- contract he didn't he ended up you know kind of betting on himself and to be honest with you the way he started out the season it was like he was smart to bet on himself you know he was going to get him you know it was like if he finished the season you know it was it was going to be time for the Cowboys to pony up and give him that monster deal and um you know it looked smart but you know hindsight's twenty twenty. But you know, with with this injury, I think I think he I think he missed an opportunity. I mean, he should have signed the contract, the long term deal, a year earlier. Maybe it wouldn't have been the you know forty five million that he wanted, but it, it would have, it would it would have been a you know a life changing contract. You know, the kind of contract where he could take care of you know generations of family members.
1: Well, according to Bavada Sportsbook, uh, this week the Cowboys are playing against the Cardinals. The Cowboys are at home. But they're um, two and a half point underdogs versus the Cardinals on Monday night. We'll, we'll see how that goes. And obviously the team looks different now. Not only is Dak Prescott out, but they haven't had Lyle Collins, the right tackle, for the entire season. Um, now Tyron Smith, left tackle, is out. And now you insert Andy Dalton into the lineup. He's, he isn't Dak Prescott. That's pretty obvious. He's had pretty average career with the Cincinnati Bengals. He was more of a, a game manager there, but I'm thankful that they signed him. Andy Dalton led them to a win against the Giants. He threw for 111 passing yards. He directed that winning drive in the final minute, filling in for the injured deck. The Cowboys are the, were the only NFC East team to win on Sunday, and they jumped into first place. They're at 2-3 and three right now is... As funny as that sounds with the losing record they're leading the division, what can we expect from the Cowboys moving forward? You and I know the defense stinks. What can we expect from Andy Dalton?
2: Andy Dalton is going to be sort of, you know, your conservative offense. He's not going to lose games for you. But the thing is is Andy Dalton works when the defense and when he has a good defense and to be honest with you, I just don't think Andy Dalton's going to put up the offensive production that he needs to to overtake the 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 Cowboys defense. So the Cowboys just don't have it on the offensive side, you know, they do, they're not going to put up a lot of points on the offensive side and they're not going to put a lot of points up on the def- you know, they're not going to stop a lot of people on the defensive side. So I don't like where the Cowboys are going the rest of the year. They're not going to have Dak at to, you know, for the rest of the year. So it's it's uh it's it's a mess in, in Dallas and you know what? I think if there's any team that I could see winning this division. It's the Philadelphia Eagles, and they'll probably be a one-and-done kind of team.
1: I don't trust the Eagles. I don't trust Carson Wentz. One week he looks great. The next week he's looking like the worst quarterback in the league. So with all due respect, the Eagles quarterback situation looks better right now. But I do think if we switch back to the Cowboys, Mike McCarthy just needs to adjust the offense. I realize that he's got Amari Cooper, Michael Gallup, CeeDee Lamb, that seems to be the strength of the team. And Dak Prescott has been throwing for 400, 500 yards every week. But I think in order for them not to get outscored every week on that defensive side of the ball, they need to just run the football. They need to trust Zeke. Elliott has to become that central piece of the puzzle. They have to run the football with them. 25 30 times a game, and they have to be stubborn with it. They have to slow down the game, and I think Andy Dalton will be more successful off of those play-action passes. They just need to adjust. Something they haven't done through these five weeks of the season, but now they have to go back to that running game, something that that we saw early on in in Dak's career.
2: To be honest with you, I, I, I mean, if there's one perspective that I do look at this from, it's that you know Andy Dalton is going to have a good receiving core. He's going to have a good offensive line. Uh, you know he's going to be able to run the ball with Zeke. So I mean this is this is maybe going to be a, a a banner year for Andy Dalton. But I still I still don't think the Cowboys just have a good enough team at this point without Dak Prescott to be
1: the division champs. I'm still sticking with the Cowboys. I'm stubborn that way because I picked them to win the Super Bowl. Obviously, they won't win the Super Bowl. I do realize that even before a Dak went down, I just realized that their defense is a lot worse than even I thought they would be. And um, I just think they still win this division, whether it's going to be with the 7-9 and or 8-8 and record. Speaking of running backs, let's talk about Le'Veon Bell. Uh, the Jets tried to trade him, there were no takers, and the Jets released him. You know, I would say the running back that just never panned out for them. His best years were with the Pittsburgh Steelers, then he sat out that one year because of the contract dispute. The last two years, he just hasn't been the same running back at all.
2: Yeah, and you know what it is, is that in Pittsburgh he had a great offensive line. And you know, and those were led by Mike Munchak in Pittsburgh. And now you he, you go to basically, you know, a below average offensive line. And you know what, the fact of the matter is, is that offensive lines matter to running backs. And to be honest with you, Le'Veon Bell needs to go to a situation with a better running game. I don't think I don't think he you know he, he, he is the Bell Cow back anymore for any team. I think he needs to go to a team with a good offensive line situation and maybe play behind a guy, you know, a team a team that might be a good fit would be like the Cleveland Browns, you know, they just lost Nick Chubb. Um, you know, maybe he comes in, you know, kind of gives them some depth while Nick Chubb is out. Um, that's 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 the kind of situation I see Le'Veon Bell doing. I mean some people are talking about him going to the Patriots, but I don't think he can I don't think he could really revive his career with the Patriots. I just um, you know, and, and, and that that's really what he is. I mean he was he became a star behind guys like David DeCastro and Marquise Pouncey and so forth and so Marcus Gilbert. And so that's why he's that's why that's why he's gotten the fame that he's got. But you know what, to be honest with you, he, he overplayed his hand. You know what? It's really it's really coming it's really coming out that he's really being exposed for the player he is, and you know he's also he's also just you know he's a self-centered guy in the locker room. I mean he, you know he, he he has problems with coaches, and you know he's he's quit on his team before and so forth and so. I I just to be honest with you, if I'm an NFL GM, I skip Le'Veon Bell. I mean I I think that's a sinking ship right there. I think I think you know the best case scenario is if he goes if he goes to a situation where. You know, they have a good offensive line, and he plays kind of a role. And I think that's what he is at this point in his career.
1: I'm going to defend Le'Veon Bell a little bit. I think as a Steelers fan, you're just being too harsh on him. You really are. I mean, you're really underselling his good years. Any running back that needs a good offensive line in order to be successful, unless you're Barry Sanders. Every Emmett Smith, Adrian Peterson, the success that they've had in the league has to go out to those guys up front. And Le'Veon Bell carried that Steelers offense for a while, Ed. I mean, I would say since 2014, he was the centerpiece of that offense because the Steelers still like to run the football. And the fact that he fit into that offense well is because he caught the ball out of the backfield so well. I mean, he was a versatile back. It wasn't all about running with the football, getting those 300 carries a season. But if you look at his numbers with the Steelers, I mean, he was with the Steelers for what, five years? He went over 1,000 yards three out of those five years. And I think in 2015, he was injured. And that's the reason why he didn't go over that 1,000-yard that mark. So I'm going to stick up for Le'Veon Bell just because in his prime, He was a top three running back in this league. And again, any running back needs a good offensive line, whether it's in college or in high school or in the NFL, in order to be successful. And uh, he's had a great career, and I think he could be a good piece for somebody. I'm not saying he's going to be a central piece now. I'm talking about his career with the Steelers. With the Jets, it was atrocious. That offensive line was was the worst one in football over the last couple of years, so there's no way he could be successful. And I feel this. I feel sorry for him and Sam Darnold and everybody. Adam Gase was the guy that should have gone before Le'Veon Bell, but the Jets are cleaning house, and and that that's pretty obvious. That Gase and most likely Sam Darnold would be shown the door pretty soon after that. I think the Browns are a good landing spot for him. The only thing is, I'm not sure. You said that he—he's not a good guy in the locker room. I'm not sure with all those personalities that the Browns have—Baker Mayfield, Jarvis Landry, OBJ. It's just too much right now. The Browns have a good thing cooking. It makes sense to bring him in because Nick Chubb is out. But I just—I think I stick with what I have right now. I think the Arizona Cardinals would be a good spot for him. Kenyon Drake has been disappointing. Chase Edmonds is a nice piece, but as a complimentary back, I wouldn't mind getting Le'Veon Bell there because I think he would be a weapon for Kyler Murray. He's a really good receiver out of the backfield. The Cardinals' offensive line is a little bit better this year than it was last year. I just think the Cardinals have a good offense. Le'Veon Bell wouldn't have to be that central piece because the Arizona Cardinals throw the football so damn much. I would say the the Arizona Cardinals, they're pushing for a playoff spot this year. Uh, it's, it looks like it's it's a competitive division with the Rams and, and the Seahawks this year. The 49ers seem to be out. I think the Cardinals would be a, a perfect landing spot for Le'Veon Bell, and I still think that he has something left in the tank.
2: I mean, I, I agree. I agree with the Arizona Cardinals landing spot. You know, you need to have a coach who's going to be able to use him well. What really what really makes Le'Veon Bell like a good back is when you use him in all phases. You know, what I'm saying when when you just try to make him a runner. I mean, that's that's not what he is. I mean, what he is is he's a guy who can catch out of the backfield. He's a guy who can line up as a receiver. You know he's supposed to be dynamic they use him as a pass blocker you keep him on the field that's really what it is you have to you have to have the right offensive coordinator for him and i think i think one of the things is that adam Gase really just hasn't done a good job as a head coach at, at the jets and you know what some people are just offensive minds and he's a good offensive mind and i think he can have a great career in the nfl as an offensive coordinator but you know what it's getting a little bit too crazy with Adam Gase and I would be just absolutely floored if he doesn't get fired by year end.
1: You know, this Adam Gase being an offensive genius is also comes with some question marks. If if you look at those numbers even before the Jets days, he had Peyton Manning with the Denver Broncos. All right, Peyton Manning made Adam Gase because Peyton Manning was a great quarterback before that. And I just feel like it's it's a myth. That Adam Gase is an offensive genius. It's for another show. I'm sure we'll talk about the Jets and and Adam Gase in the upcoming weeks. But there is another coach that lost his job after Sunday, and that was Dan Quinn. Dan Quinn got fired by the Falcons on Monday after an 0-5 start. It wasn't only Dan Quinn. GM Thomas Dimitrov was also fired. So the Falcons cleaned house completely. Uh, Raheem Morris becomes the interim head coach. He has been a head coach in this league before with the Buffalo Bills. Dan Quinn came over from the Seahawks. He was known as a defensive guru, but they never gave him the pieces. They never drafted well on that side of the ball, if you look at at Thomas Dimitrov's numbers. And, And Dan Quinn's defense was terrible during his time with the Atlanta Falcons.
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean there was there were times there were flashes. I mean, at the end of, of last year they went five and two, and there was some hope. But you know what? This year, I mean, for them to go zero and five with Matt Ryan, you only get so many years with a guy like Matt Ryan. And you know, the fact is is they aren't converting. So you know what? It was time to it was time it's time to clean house and find a new coach. And to be honest with you, you know, get a coach who can help who can help Matt Ryan be successful. I mean, I would love to see a good offensive mind, you know, work with Matt Ryan and really really help him, you know, become sort of, you know, back back to those days of being sort of that top that top 12 quarterback in the league cuz I think I think he's fully capable of that. And, and you know, maybe just a coach that they can they can build a team around, you know, a coach who, you know, has a vision for what he wants to do when he drafts a quarterback, you know. Is he is he gonna be able to find a, a QB, you know, of the future for Matt Ryan? And, you know, are they, are are they gonna be able to build the team around him? And I think they've done I don't think they've drafted horribly but I mean, they, you know, they could they could do better in a draft, and I think if they just get some fresh personnel, I think I think the Falcons can be back. I think they have some pieces in place, and I think it's an attractive job. I I, I think there are going to be some coaches that are going to want to going to want to coach in Atlanta.
1: When Kyle Shanahan was the offensive coordinator, Matt Ryan had his best years, and that's when they went to that Super Bowl and and lost to the Patriots. But I can say that as far as Quinn, I mean, things started to crumble for him in the Falcons after they, they blew that 28 to3 lead in the third quarter to the New England Patriots in, in 2017. I mean, obviously the Patriots won, and then the Falcons and Quinn went 24 and 29 after that Super Bowl. The Falcons have been committed to defense. They had the last two coaches, they've been defensive coaches. Mike Smith, Dan Quinn. I mean, they have to go offense now, right? I mean, they've got Matt Ryan, who is who is up there. They still have those wide receivers with Julio Jones and Calvin Ridley and, and Russell Gage coming on this year. They've got to go offense, right? So who are your candidates, Ed?
2: I mean, I'm going to go back to it. I mean, I, I think there's going to be so many people that would love to have an Eric enemy, you know, who guy who was able to work with Patrick Mahomes. I mean, Matt Ryan is a little bit different quarterback than Patrick Mahomes. You know, guys for with different expertise, maybe a Greg Roman might be different if they want to go with a different philosophy, build up their defense a little
1: bit. Um, so there's some names out there. Actually, I think this job for Eric Bieniemy would be more attractive than the Texans job. Just in my opinion, because I think the Falcons have a lot more of a foundation on the offensive side of the ball. They, they have a good offensive line at least. But I can pose this question. I'm curious where you stand on it. If the Falcons go like 1-15 and 15 or 2-14, and 14, shouldn't they just blow it all up? Shouldn't they trade like Matt Ryan if they can get one of those quarterbacks in the top five? Because Matt Ryan could still get you a, a late first-round pick. What do you think
2: about that? You know, you could get a package of picks. You know, from Matt Ryan and then, you know, I mean, especially if they could be in if they could be in like the Trevor Lawrence or, you know, Justin Fields. And I mean, you know, Matt Ryan is kind of on the older end of his career. And I think there's going to be some NFL team, some quarterback needy NFL team, you know, especially that's going to want to do it in the short term, kind of like the Bucks were last year. That w- that would really want really want a Matt Ryan, um, you know, get a package of picks, and that can really help build up the roster of the Atlanta Falcons. And yeah, I mean, maybe if they can get Trevor Lawrence, I mean, that might be a good situation. You get him, you know, you get him a good quarterback coach, and uh, yeah, I th- I think I think that might be a way that you could rebuild this Atlanta Falcons team.
1: Yeah, I think they need to do that. They need more picks, and they need to hit on. On some of those defensive players, which they haven't done in the past, there are a couple of big games this weekend in the NFL. The one big game to me that that sticks out are the Buffalo Bills. They're four and one, and the Kansas City Chiefs also four and one. According to Bovada, the Chiefs are three point favorites on the road. Where do you stand on this? The Bills just suffered their first loss to the Tennessee Titans. Do you think the Chiefs take this game?
2: I mean, I th- I think the Chiefs will take it on a close one. I mean, the Chiefs the Chiefs are you know obviously going to be a little upset after last week. I think when you compare Bills and Chiefs, um, you know the Chiefs are the better team and they have Patrick Mahomes and that's
1: really that's really the
2: X factor in this game.
1: Let's talk about your Steelers. Chase Claypool just blew up this past week. He scored four touchdowns for the Steelers. Uh, three receiving touchdowns and one rushing touchdown. He he became the first rookie in the NFL to do that. He's for real. The specimen out of Notre Dame. He they've been trusting him a little bit more, and he was Ben Roethlisberger's favorite target last Sunday. For me, I,
2: I you know I cover Steelers' site, and um, you know I wrote a piece where I pretty much just knocked. I, I pretty much just knocked chase claypool pick i mean i just thought he was overrated and you know the two things that I, I i i criticize him on is his release off the line and his route running and those were things that just showed up big time in that steelers game i mean the, he's a six foot four guy and the steelers were lining him a bit in the slot and throwing him quick slants on like third and short i mean that's just like it's that's just that's not something you can do with most receivers and so the the way the way they found a guy with good measurables with good character who played in a power 5 conference and you know what? I, I have to give the Steelers a little bit more confidence in how they find receivers. And, and and to be honest with you, I people on Twitter said, you know, well, you this is what you said about Chase Claypool, and it's like, yeah, I mean, you know, I have draft evaluations, and you know what? I I, I have my opinion, and I I go by what I see on tape and what I what I think a player will be. But you know what? You just never know how these players are going to develop, and Chase Claypool has shown. That he is a superstar type of player. I mean, I think he can be like a Martavis Bryant without the you know, without the baggage. Um, I think he I think he'll uh, surpass Martavis Bryant in his career. I think he has that similar body type. If I'm the Steelers. I mean, I put Juju Smith-Schuster on one side, and I put Chase Claypool on the other side and make him my number two receiver. And, you know, a guy like Deontay Johnson, I mean, he's had some injury issues. I mean, he's had, like, three different injuries. You know, he had a concussion, he had a back injury, you know, he has a foot injury.
1: Well, I guess we should never question Steelers' picks when it comes to wide receivers, especially in the past decade. Because the funny thing is, I mean, the Steelers... They haven't drafted a first-round wide receiver. I had to go back since 2006. And in 2006, this is before Colbert becoming the, the GM, the official GM of the Pittsburgh Steelers. They selected Ohio State wide receiver Santonio San, San Holmes, and he had that big catch in, in the Super Bowl against the the arizona cardinals but steelers wide receivers under kevin colbert who officially again became the gm of this team in 2010 we should never question them they just they always seem to have a type and they're different guys they really are sometimes they go for a chase claypole type of player who had a great combine who ran a a four four two who who jumped out of this world and in terms of his vertical, I think he he jumped over like forty two inches or something like that. He had a great broad jump. Sometimes they take good, you know, speedy guys. Sometimes they take good route runners, but they're able to find talent and then they're able to coach them up. And I think it's just a perfect combination. So let's start in two thousand and ten. This is before officially before Colbert became the GM because he became one after the draft. But in that draft, the Steelers drafted Emmanuel Sanders in the third round, and then they struck gold in the sixth round with Antonio Brown.
2: Yeah, I mean those those were two great picks, and you know I, I think I think you know Emmanuel Sanders actually just just had a great night with the Saints. Um, you know he put up some big numbers and. So I mean, Emmanuel Sanders is still is still a great receiver in the league, even though you know he, the Steelers didn't choose to keep him. I mean, they kind of had the big three with Mike Wallace, and uh, Antonio Brown, and uh, Emmanuel Sanders. And actually, the latest blo- the, the latest bloomer of the three was Antonio Brown, but he ended up actually being the best one to keep around. You know, until until he he sort of fell off the face of the earth. But I mean, he gave them a lot of great years, and so I mean, Antonio Brown might be might be the best pick of all
1: all, all of Colbert's career. But I think he's the best wide receiver that they've had. But I mean, Emmanuel Sanders never had over a thousand yards with the Steelers. He had a couple of productive years, but he found his most of his success with the Denver Broncos uh, when he went there and he became. A big time target in that system for for Peyton Manning, but Antonio Brown, probably the greatest Steeler wide receiver of all time. I'm not I'm not gonna be around the bush. Just you you look at his numbers. He had six seasons where he had over a hundred plus receptions, and then seven seasons with over a thousand plus receiving yards. I mean, this guy was the go to guy. This guy was the ultimate Steeler before Juju arrived. So I would say great picks out there in 2011 they didn't draft a wide receiver in 2012 they drafted a guy tony clemens a wide receiver in the seventh round in 2013 they tried their luck once again with those day two picks marcus wheaton uh, out of oregon state they were hoping to s- strike gold there but it didn't happen ed
2: they haven't sort totally
1: missed on some picks but i mean they've They've, you know, there have been some... Let's talk about Marcus Wheaton. I mean, he never developed. He never had a 1,000-yard season. I think he had, like... Maybe over 40-plus receptions for like 600-plus yards. I'm not sure exactly of the statistics, but it just didn't work there. I mean, again, they tried to strike gold in the third round. Then in the sixth round, they drafted Justin Brown, the wide receiver out of Oklahoma. He never made the team. In 2014, one of your favorite Steelers, what could have been? Martavius Bryant with some off the field issues coming out of Clemson, was drafted in the fourth round, and he had a lot of flashes. It's just it's unfortunate the way his his career went down the toilet.
2: You know, the fact of the matter is is that I think I think there was some kind of mental problem with Martavis Bryan. I think he had kind of a drug problem and it's it's sad, honestly. And I mean he could have been an absolutely great player. I don't think he was a violent guy, but he had talents like he was unbelievably fast. He was tall. He could make the circus catch. I mean, he when he was on, he was on, but you know what? He never he never really got to be that number 1 receiver for the Steelers and you know, eventually the Steelers just couldn't take it anymore and they sent him to the sent him to the Raiders and then he couldn't he couldn't re, revive his career in Oakland, so Addiction
1: is a terrible thing, and addiction is a terrible thing, and unfortunately, I mean, people are addicted to many things, and he just couldn't control his problem. Next year, in 2015, Colbert selected Sammy Coates in the third round, the speedy wide receiver out of Auburn. He just never developed. He had inconsistent hands, he wasn't a good route runner, but once again, the Steelers tried to strike gold with a scouting combine freak. And it just, it didn't work out. And then they continued. In 2016, in the seventh round, they selected DeMarcus Ayers. Then in 2017, in the second round, they chose Juju Smith-Schuster out of USC.
2: You know, I, th- I think this was a good pick. To be honest with you, his 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 second year in the league is kind of his marquee year. You know, after he kind of phased out in his third year and his fourth year, and I think... I think Juju Smith-Schuster is going to have a good career in the NFL. I think he's going to have a good long career in the NFL. I don't. I don't see the Steelers keeping him uh, past this year. Uh, I don't. Um, you know, to be honest with you, they're kind of salary cap strapped, and you know, they they've been able to draft receivers. And I think really their 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 number one of the future is Chase Claypool. I think you know even by his second year, I think he's going to be. Uh, ben Roethlisberger's number one target um, going into it, and so you know they're going to probably try to rely on guys like Deontay Johnson in the future and next year, and um, you know maybe James Washington will give them something. But I think Ju- I think Juju Smith-Schuster will be a free agent, and I think he'll go somewhere else, and I think he'll be a good receiver somewhere else. I just the thing with Juju Smith-Schuster is I think he's a great number two receiver. But when you ask him to be the number one and really shut him down, I think he gets shut down. When he was the number two behind Antonio Brown, that's where he really succeeded. So I I think being the number two guy is just a much better fit for Juju Smith-Schuster.
1: In 2018, the Steelers once again addressed the wide receiver position on day two. They went after the Oklahoma State product, James Washington, He hasn't materialized. I I had him as the top wide receiver in that draft, you remember. Injuries have held him back. He had 44 receptions for over 700 receiving yards last year. It was kind of a breakout year, but people are still waiting for him to break out. But now it seems like some guys have surpassed him on the depth chart. and I just think the Steelers have, have kind of given up on him now that they're playing Claypool and Deontay Johnson ahead of him when he's healthy. So James Washington hasn't materialized. He has been a below average wide receiver at this point.
2: Yeah, unfortunately, he he didn't become the receiver they thought he would be, but you know, he was an interesting name and he's he's flashed. I mean, he's not he hasn't been terrible. He hasn't been a terrible receiver for the Steelers, but you know, I think he, you know, maybe he might be like a number 3 or a number 4 or um, you know, m- maybe you know, in the next few years he will probably be the number 3 and you know eventually probably after four years they'll let him walk and um the problem the problem i I have with james washington too is he's really not a special teams player and so you know generally a guy who's a number three or a number four receiver you want them to add something in the special teams department whether it's you know returning kicks or returning punts or you know playing gunner or something like that and he really doesn't do any of those things so yeah i i think that's my bigger qualm with james washington
1: In 2019, once again, the Steelers went with a pick, a wide receiver in the second round, Deontay Johnson out of Toledo. He flashed as a rookie, came on at the end of the year. You mentioned already that he's had injuries that he has dealt with, and that has kind of held him back, especially this year. And eventually, in 2020, again, for the fourth straight year in the second round, Chase Claypool, the wide receiver out of Notre Dame, was... Was the pick. So once again, if you look at the overall body of work over the past decade, I mean, they hit on Antonio Brown, they hit on Emmanuel Sanders, Juju, Deontay Johnson, Chase Claypool have given them early returns. We'll, we'll see how they'll continue to develop. And they've missed on guys like Sammy Coates and, and James Washington and Martavius Bryan. But overall, the Steelers know how to draft wide receivers. So when, whenever they draft a wide receiver in the draft, just put him on your list because eventually he'll he'll contribute on the football field.
2: Yeah, I mean they, they have the system where they can they've let so many receivers walk and go to other teams. And to be honest with you, that you know they, it seems like they just you know in the second or third round they like to they like to go after a receiver and get one on day two and a. It seems like kind of just a yearly thing where they're just they're just kind of always going to the well, always going to the well. It it it's worked out well for them because you know some of them some of them end up being sort of you know more role players and some of them become more um, you know stars and so. Um, you know, they've hit a few stars, and I mean, I, I fully expect next year, I mean, with Juju Smith-Schuster leaving, I think the Steelers will go to the well again, and I think they will draft a receiver in the second
1: round. This week, the Steelers are at home. They're playing against the surprising Cleveland Browns. The Steelers are 4-0. and The Browns are 4-1. and The Cleveland Browns have won four straight games. Bavada has the Steelers. As the favorites at home, minus seven and a half points, they're getting. What do you think about this game? This is a dangerous game. At
2: yeah, I, the way the way I see the Steelers Browns game, I I think I think it's going to be a good matchup. This is the first real matchup of the Steelers. I mean, the Steelers haven't really played a difficult team this year. So I mean, yeah, the Steelers are four and zero, but it's like we don't we don't know who they you know we don't know who they really are. I mean, obviously, I'm encouraged to see them winning close games, but I mean, I just, I just don't know. This is going to be the first real test to see, you know, can the Steelers beat good teams? And um, they haven't really played division games. You know, this game will be a big indicator for the Steelers. I, th- I think this game says more about who the Steelers are than it does about who the Browns are. Because I think, I think the Browns are proving themselves, and I think Stefanski is showing that he's the right guy for the job. We've got Bailey Zappi on the line, uh, the quarterback from Houston Baptist. How are
3: you doing today, Bailey? Doing great. Pleasure to be on here. Thank you.
2: Dave Campbell's Texas football named you the most underrated quarterback in America. Do you agree with
3: that? Um, I guess in, you know, some aspects, yes sir, I guess you could say that. You know, I kinda I'm not a you know, a self driven person. I mean of course I'm a self driven person, but I'm not a, a guy that kinda is conceited and kinda looks at myself as a guy that should, you know, get more clout than I am right now. Um you know, I let other people say what they want to and of course, I agree. I believe that I do have the measurables and I've done things that, you know, I could compare to other guys around the nation, but I have many more things to improve on and, you know, I'm ready to get back at it so I can fix those things.
1: Uh, Bailey, most FCS programs canceled their fall football season. Houston Baptist was one of the lucky ones. You, you played in four games. What was it like to be out there on the football field with your teammates again?
3: Oh, it was great. It was awesome to be out there. And like you said, not many people um, in the FCS division were able to play this fall. I believe there was only like 15, 16 teams out of the entire FCS that even had a game, uh, one game. So, you know, we were extremely blessed. Four teams caught us and wanted to play us. So, you know, we took advantage of that. And, you know, we were able to do some great things. And we're able to look back on these four games to, to fix our mistakes and improve on those.
2: Tell us about the Texas Tech game this year. What was thrilling about that contest?
3: Um, first most, I mean, of course, playing against Texas Tech, you know, as a Big 12 program, um, you know, being an FCS program going into a Big 12 uh, stadium and against Big 12 players is always is always awesome. The environment there is is amazing. You know, it's some it's an environment that you know most of the guys on the team and you know most of the coaches have never been a part of. Great experiences. You know, we made some memories that we'll never forget. And to be able to go in there and, you know, only lose by two points when we were supposed to lose by 42, you know, is even better. And, you know, I couldn't be more proud of my guys and my coaches. And, you know, I'm really looking forward to, you know, the next games next year.
1: Was that the most thrilling, the most interesting game out of the the four games that you played in this year?
3: Oh, yes, sir. By far, you know, like I said, we went in there big time underdogs. I remember seeing a spread that we were supposed to lose by 42 points and, uh, you know, being able to, you know, prove all the naysayers and haters wrong is, you know, is awesome to do that. And, you know, it was a great experience. And, you know, like I said, it's going to be something that we remember forever. And it's a big time game for this program.
1: You wish you would have played more games than just the, the four games that you were a part of? I mean, it is kind of weird to to end your season in the beginning of October, right?
3: Oh, yeah, it's it's very weird. You know, being done right now, Not, you know, we're working out. That's really about it. It feels, you know, the last three years we've had, you know, 11, 12 games. So being done after four is, you know, is unusual. But um, like I said, we're thankful we have these four games. You know, most people didn't have the opportunities we had. We were able to take advantage of that. And, you know, we're looking forward to coming years.
1: Bailey, what is the highlight of your career up to this point?
3: Um, I guess like since we're talking about the Texas Tech game, I would have to say that's probably you know kind of like our HBU coming out party. You know, we kind of shocked a bunch of people that game. A bunch of people didn't think we were gonna do what we did, and we were able to put you know HBU program on the map, and let alone we we're able to put some of us on the map. And you know, looking back at it, you know, it's it's awesome, and you know, it's something that you know you wish you can go back and experience again. To be able to do what we did is is unbelievable.
2: Why weren't you highly recruited coming out of Texas high school?
3: Um, I think, personally, I think the reason was, you know, I'm from a small town in Texas down in Victoria. You know, it's about sixty, sixty-five thousand 65,000 people there, kind of middle of nowhere. So I guess I really didn't have that much of a, you know, I wasn't playing big-time high schools like at the Allens and the KDs and the DeSotos, so I really wasn't able to play against big-time schools like that. And uh, you know, kind of put my name out there. So a bunch of the, bunch of things I had to do was I had to go to camps and stuff like that. That's what I believe is the only reason why is because where I uh, where I was playing at.
2: What are your strengths?
3: You know, on the football field, I believe that my knowledge on the of the game and knowing the football itself and um, kind of sets me apart. And then uh, firmly believe in myself to you know make the plays, make every throw, whether it's from the right hash throwing to the you know opposite sideline or you know, on the run, make a throw down the field. Um, and then, uh, you know, I'm a highly competitive guy. I want to win. I'm going to do everything I possibly can to win. I'm going to um, get the ball to my playmakers, do, let them do what they do best. And then I like to think I'm a good leader, leader by example. I like to, you know, give 100%. I like to work hard every day. Um, you know, my motto is, you know, continue to get better and get better each and every day and be better than I was yesterday.
2: What are you working on the most to improve your game?
3: There's a couple things that I'm consistently working on. You know, I'm always working on being more accurate, throwing the ball. Um, after this year, you know, looking back, uh, pocket presence, being able to stay in the pocket a little bit longer, kind of hold on, I want to hold on to the ball a little bit longer. Don't try to scramble as much. Try to hang on to the last second. And then, uh, you know, I always try to work on turnovers. You know, which comes with being accurate. I was able to do this, do that this year. Only had one interception love it to be zero but you know um, there's always stuff that i can improve on
1: you mentioned that you're from a small town in texas how did houston baptist find you
3: so the qb coach um at that time before coach kitley got here was actually from victoria so he went to victoria high school i was a little baby i believe when he was in high school and then when he came here at hbu um we had that victoria connection and um uh, That's how they found me.
1: What have you learned the most from your head coach, Coach Shealy? Oh, man,
3: I love Coach Shealy. You know, everybody talks about how great he is on the field and how he's been able to start a program from the ground up and, you know, go through all the adversity that program has been through and, you know, be able to stay with it. And so now we're, we're competing with FBS schools. You know, it's been able to teach all of us a lot. He teaches us, you know, a great character, being a great teammate, Um, both on and off the field. You know, he's somebody that um, when I'm done playing football, when I'm not on the field, that I can always reach out to and, you know, ask for advice or, you know, just talk to about things going on in my life. And, you know, he's somebody that I really look up to, and he's a great man.
1: Uh, We're joined by Bailey Zappi, quarterback from Houston Baptist. We're talking to him right now. I want to find out about your offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach, Zach Keatley. He was at Texas Tech before with Cliff Kingsbury when Patrick Mahomes was the quarterback. What has he meant to you in terms of your development?
3: Oh man, he's he's been huge, most definitely. Um, he's been able to come, he came in uh, my sophomore year, and you know since then I firmly believe that a large part of what I'm doing now is what I've been, what I've learned from him. You know, he's really helped me improve my. Um, knowledge of the game he's helped me understand coverages understand defensive tendencies uh, downs and you know the fronts and you know he's really helped me improve my pre-snap recognition and stuff like that and then um, off the field he's really helped me with you know continuing to be a great leader continuing to work on that and continuing to be a great teammate and you know helping those that helping the guys you know continue to learn the plays and you know he's really helped me um, be just like another coach on the football field which is you Knows really helped us as an offense.
1: Tell us about those guys up front on the offensive line. They surprised me in that Texas Tech game, that the way they held up.
3: Oh yeah, they those five guys that we had this year are the best guys that I've that I've ever played with. I mean, from
1: Ray Burnett to Dan
3: Wilkins to Christian Hood and uh, Doro Armory, and then uh, we had a few tackles with William Brewer, Nathan Beveridge. Gabriel Martinez you know those eight guys is just they gave their hearts out for us and they battled they battled through adversity they went against you know big 12 opponents a power a power five defensive line and a group five uh, defensive line and you know they held their own like I've said many times I couldn't be more proud of those guys um, they kept me clean um, not many people expected us to go in there and do what we did and a large part of what we we're able to do as an offense credited to them because without those guys, we don't do anything on the offensive side. All
1: right, tell us about those two main targets in the passing game. I'm talking about the wide receivers, Ben Ratzlaff and, and Jared Stearns. Those guys make your job look easy.
3: Oh, no doubt. First, I'll talk about Ben Ratzlaff. I mean, I I firmly believe that he's the best wide receiver in, in the nation in the FCS division. And maybe I know for a fact he can compete with those guys at the FBS level. You know, he has great hands, great route runner um he's always open you know he's just a, he's another guy that i can look forward to whenever i'm in a bind whenever i'm scrambling around that he's in you know make the right decision to get open for me and make it easy on me and then moving on to jared i mean everybody's seen what he can do i mean he led scs and receptions last year with 100 106 108 um he's kind of i called him i call him mr consistent he runs every route the same um he's always open he uh Whenever I'm in a bind, like I was talking about Ben, he's always, you know, always there where I can dump it down to him and he can go make a play. He's my security blanket. I know if I put the ball in his vicinity, he's always going to go get it, even the 50-50 balls. Just like I was talking about Ben, I think he's another one that uh, he's probably the, another one of the best SCS receivers in the nation. And I, I firmly believe that we have the best deal here.
2: Who's the quarterback you model your game after?
3: A large part of, like, the mental game, um, the mental aspect of the game, I I looked at the guys like the Peyton Mannings and Drew Breeses and, you know, watching them play and how they, you know, they analyze defenses and how they checking out of plays and get their offense in the right play against, the, you know, what the defense is going into. So the mental aspect, I look at those guys and then, like, you know, the physical part and, you know, throwing and running around. I look at guys like Patrick Mahomes, um, Russell Wilson, You know, I watch a lot of highlights and film on those guys, you know, see some of the things that they do and, you know, try to mimic those guys and, you know, kind of like tweak what they do and kind of make it kind of like my own thing. So, you know, those four guys, is kind of like I kind of mold all that together and try to make it into one.
1: You've been a team captain for three years now, Bailey, and how much pride do you take in that, being that that leader in that room and in practice and, in the film room, in the weight room, and during games?
3: I mean, it's huge.
1: Um, being a quarterback, being the leader, it comes with a position.
3: You know, you have to be vocal. You have to be understanding. You have to make the players around you better. You know, all, our captains are always voted on by, you know, the team, by the players. And for my players and my teammates, you know, considering me a team captain is something that, you know, that I cherish. And I'm grateful for that, that they look up to me. And and I hope that I can continue you know, to be a great role model and be a great leader for them and hopefully lead a, this program to the first ever playoffs.
2: Tell us about your accomplishments off the field.
3: Yeah. So, um, right now I'm getting my degree in marketing. Um, I'm currently trying to figure out, you know, what I'm going to do with my future. If I stay or if I go, um, if I decide to stay, I'm probably going to end up getting my master's. Um, I do not know which field that is in right now. If I decide to stay, I'm definitely gonna get my master's. And then I mean, other than school, you know, I try to get, I get, try to get down to Victoria. I try to get, help the community with stuff and try to give back to those that uh, help me get to where I am right now.
1: So Houston Baptist made the announcement that they won't play in the spring. They'll prepare for the fall season in 2021. What are your plans moving forward? Obviously, you've received a lot of hype uh, playing against some of the bigger programs. Are you coming back next fall for your true senior year?
3: That's another like I was talking about. Um, the last question is I'm not I'm not fully sure of what I'm gonna do right now. I'm committed to this team. I'm committed to these coaches, but you know I'm still listening to you know what the NFL scouts have to say and when they're evaluating me and when what they're projecting me if I'm gonna be drafted or if I'm gonna be a free agent. So really, depending on how that goes is depending on if I stay. You know my heart's here at HBU. So whatever happens, you know it's in God's hand. So I'm just following His path.
1: Well, Bailey, good luck with school, and I hope we do see you back next fall because you know Houston Baptist University, the football program, it has come a long way. And if you come back, I mean, they have a shot at getting that first winning season next year.
3: Yes, sir. No doubt. Looking forward to it.
1: All right. Take care, Bailey. Thank you for having me. All right. We're back from the interview, and let's talk about college football. The Red River Showdown. Oklahoma Sooners against the Texas Longhorns. What a game, Ed. It went into quadruple overtime. I mean, I looked at that game, I watched it, and I was like, man, I wish this game would go seven, eight overtimes like we saw with Texas A&M Aggies against LSU a couple of years ago. That was an exciting game.
2: Yeah, it it was an exciting game. And obviously, uh, you know, the Texas Longhorns came back and um, you know, it was it was it was well. You know, in the fourth quarter, and so you know, kind of traded touchdown after touchdown after touchdown. So, yeah, I, I think I think I think this was a good game. I'm I'm really glad to see Oklahoma get the win here. Um, you know, this has been a tough year for this team, and you know they've they've had some tough losses, and so it's nice to, it's nice to see them. Uh, you know, you know win a win a close game like this, show some, you know, show that they can play as a team and win big games, and so. You know, this was an encouraging sign to see Oklahoma. I mean, at least redeem themselves because I mean, it, it it was a really close game. But I mean, if Oklahoma loses this game, I mean, I mean, that's the point where you know Oklahoma fans kind of say, "Hey, maybe I'm, maybe I'm going to spend my Saturdays doing something else. I can't, I can't watch this team." You know, especially
1: a fan base that expects to win. The Oklahoma Sooners once again uh, blew that fourth quarter lead. They had a two touchdown lead. I'm, I was impressed with the way Spencer Rattler he got pulled then he came back in the second half and he looked sharp he looked accurate especially in overtime this guy the freshman made plays and that's what i was impressed with but you also gotta love sam ellinger texas quarterback he showed his fighting spirit in the fourth quarter in overtime he just he refused to lose he's a great college quarterback and a great leader yeah i well i don't know i mean uh, He is. I mean, you got to give it to him. This isn't about. This isn't an indictment in terms of what kind of a pro he's going to be. This guy's a great college quarterback. He's going to go up there on the pedestal. I mean, Vince Young is always going to be the epitome of the Texas Longhorns quarterbacks just because he won that national championship against the USC Trojans. But Sam Ellinger, ever since he took over that starting role, he's won a lot of games and he has been he has been texas football as they say
2: well i i just think i th- i think if he's all the things you're saying he is i think he should have a better 2020 in his in his last year you know in college so i mean that's 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 the thing is i think this year has been a disappointment for him i think you know maybe going into the season i might have i might have agreed with you but um you know he he hasn't impressed me as much sure sure he's pulled out some great comebacks but to be honest with you, I felt I feel much better about Sam Ellinger early in his career in college than I do at this point in his career in college.
1: Well, hey, Texas can't play defense, Ed. Just like Oklahoma's defense is, can't pull out the stops. The big game in college football this week, it's Alabama at home versus Georgia. Uh, Bovada has the Alabama Crimson Tide as a six-and-a-half-point favorite. In this game, how do you see this game unfolding? Uh, Alabama is explosive. Mac Jones is accurate as you could be last week. I mean, he just he didn't miss a ton of passes. I think he uh, he didn't complete like four passes during that game, so he was just as accurate as a quarterback can be in college. What does Georgia need to do in order to win this game? To be honest with you, I I
2: just I don't see Georgia winning this game. I think I think a lot of this is going to come down to quarterback play, and I think Mac Jones is the better college quarterback at this point in his career. I think I think Stetson Bennett has done enough to hold down the job, and I think he's done enough to keep their defense in games, and that's why they're winning games. But to be honest with you, I think when they play Alabama, and you you know you see what that Mac Jones is putting up as far as, you know, statistics, I mean, you know, Stetson Bennett. I, I just I, I think he's I think he's the weak point in this game and I think I think this goes to the Alabama Crimson tide.
1: Georgia again has to run the football better. And I think we might see JT Barrett in this game. That that's all I'm saying. If if Alabama makes a couple of explosive plays in the first half with Jalen Waddell and and Najee Harris or Devontae Smith, and they jump out to a lead, and Georgia knows that it has to come back, and it can't just rely on its running game. Don't be surprised if J.D. Barrett enters the game in the second half. A couple of SEC upsets last week. LSU lost to Missouri 45-41 to last weekend. They, they couldn't score in the end from the one-yard line. That just They couldn't punch it in. They had four downs to do it. The defense isn't playing well. Blown coverage, missed tackles, the heat is on defensive coordinator Bo Pelini. You know, losing Joe Burrow was huge. He went to the NFL, but losing Dave Aranda as a defensive coordinator might be the biggest loss here. The days of Les Miles and when LSU was holding Alabama to, to nine points or over. LSU has got to play better defense.
2: It's not so much that is uh, I think they just lost a lot of pieces on their team. I mean, you lose you lose your whole team to the draft and then a lot of your top guys opt out. I mean, they they you know, Jamar Chase isn't playing for them, so it's like, you know, they they just they just they rely on top talent. I mean, that's what makes LSU great is they recruit some of the best players in the country every year and they just don't have the talent that they've had in years past.
1: Florida Gators also went down last Saturday against the Texas A&M Aggies, I was surprised. I mean, I realized that Gators' defense hasn't been great and it finally caught up to them. I mean, they struggled against Texas A&M Aggies. I thought Kellen Mond, the quarterback for Texas A&M, played really well.
2: Yeah, I mean, he he made the key plays in that game, you know, for, for uh, Texas A&M. And, you know, that last-minute field goal, uh, you know was was what really sealed it i mean i don't want i don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater though with with uh florida i th- i think this is just that texas a&m played a great game against against the florida gators but i don't i don't think the florida gators are out i mean i think i think you're allowed to have one loss in the sec and i think this this is going to be their loss because i think i think there's a lot of things going right for florida and I'm not saying this is a fluke, but I'm just saying I'm just saying teams are allowed to have one loss and I think this is it for for Florida.
1: I think the Gators will still win the SEC East and uh, they'll face Alabama in the SEC championship game. I just I have a feeling that the Gators will will get the win against Georgia, will get over the hump. I think their offense is really good. The weapons are clicking and it's not only Kyle Pitts. Trevon Grimes, a wide receiver, Kadarius Toney, they just need to run the football a little bit better, and they need to clean up some of those issues on the defensive side of the ball.
2: Justin Williams joins us. He's a beat writer for The Athletic who covers the Cincinnati Bearcats. Justin, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
2: Yeah, of course. Um, So let's get right to it. How has head coach Luke Fickle turned this program around?
0: Yeah. I mean, this has obviously been kind of a couple of years in the making. This is, this is his fourth season that, that first year when he took over 2017, the team went four and eight. And, you know, as he has said many times, it was, it was pretty close to going one and 11. You know, It was kind of a, a tough transition, but you know, I, I think it's, it's kind of been a holistic change for him. It definitely, you know, he came in and started on the recruiting trail. The there's, really good you know he's obviously familiar with Ohio and, and Cincinnati recruiting from all his years at Ohio State and, and just kind of Midwest recruiting in general but so he's familiar with that footprint and the local recruiting specifically had really dropped off under Tommy Tuberville at Cincinnati and so you know one of the first things he did was he went into some of those local Cincinnati high schools and he had you know uh, relationships with because of the time at Ohio State but he just kind of planted his flag and it made it known that that's what he cared about for for uc football was recruiting locally he called it the state of cincinnati and it's it's spread out from there into the state of ohio and then so that was definitely a part of it but the other thing and you can still see signs of this on the roster at some spots was he came in and, and took guys who were either kind of decent or unheralded recruits under tommy tuberville and just really maximize what you know what, what the bearcats got out of them on the field Specifically, the, the these past two seasons when they had 11 wins, a lot of that was done with, you know, Tuberville recruits, previous regime recruits that, that Fickle just managed. Fickle and his staff managed to to get a lot of out of. And this year, we're really kind of starting to see that transition into more of the, the Fickle recruiting. He's had, I think, three or four full recruiting cycles. He's had two or three of the highest rated. Uh, recruiting cycles in program history so it, he's already made that change but he's able to translate it to, to the field as well in terms of production he's, he's getting out of players it, it's honestly it's just been a kind of a complete culture shift you know complete culture remaking by fickle and his staff and i think they expected to see those results i don't think they expected to see them as quickly as they did and, and i don't know that they expected in year four to be a, a top 10 program but things are certainly going well for them
1: The Michigan State Spartans were interested in Coach Fickle last year. I think he was their first choice. Do you get the feeling that he's here for the long haul, or do you think he's just waiting for the right job to open up next
0: year? Yeah, I mean, honestly, the past two off seasons, after that first 11-1 year, he had some interest from power conference programs, and then definitely this past year he had a lot. The Michigan State one was kind of the most – public one but there, there were plenty that that came before that too um i think the michigan state one is the one that he certainly considered the most or, or entertained the most and there's obvious reasons for that it, it being a big 10 school and some of the ties he had to, to mark d'antonio who was there before and I, I think going into that off season if you would have asked most fans or people around the program like hey if michigan state comes calling you know what do you think fickle's going to do i think most would, would have thought he would have left The the timing of that one was a little bit weird, but I think he has continually said he's not looking for the next job. He likes what he's building at Cincinnati. His family is comfortable here. And he really backed that up by first by kind of turning down the the Michigan State job. Then, you know, his son, his oldest son, Landon, committed to the 2021 class recruiting class and then just a couple months ago he inked a six-year contract extension that would keep him here through I think 2024 uh, or 2026 excuse me so all those things you know when you put them all together it's kind of hard to say he hasn't shown that he wants to stay in Cincinnati and you know the obvious kind of things that I think would pull him away are Ohio State where he played and coached, and maybe a program like Notre Dame. he a, He's a big Catholic family, comes from that. So I think if either of those schools come calling, it'd be tough for him to turn that down. But outside of that, I just don't know what other situations he would he would entertain leaving for uh, based on what he's shown the past two off-seasons.
1: What position does his son play? I believe he's an offensive guard, or at
0: least he projects that at college. Maybe he plays the tackle. In high school but he plays uh he plays for moeller high school here in Cincinnati, which is you know, kind of a, a long story big-time program and uh you know he's a, a three-star recruit projects to play guard for him in the 2021 class and i you know he's gotten some offers from power conferences and i know fickle from what i've heard kind of basically washed his hands of it and was like if if the staff wants to recruit him that's fine i don't really want to be involved but obviously it was you know some impression has been made on his son because um, he signed on or committed on to, to be here in 2021
2: the Bearcats are number eight in the polls. Is this the best they've ever
0: been? During the Brian Kelly years, which would have been 2007, 8, and 9, I believe it was here for three years, they, they, you know, they went to two BCS Bulls. That's back when they were in the Big East. And they got as high as, I think, number three in the AP polls. They they finished the 2009 season after they got smoked by florida in um in the orange bowl uh they finished that i think ninth in the final ap poll so this is the, the highest they've been since then you know over a decade now uh since they've been in the top 10 so they haven't quite hit the heights that they hit under under brian Kelly, but you know that was there in the big east then it was certainly kind of a different college football landscape uh, and i think the fact that they've gotten back there this year even with all the the weirdness going on with the schedule uh it's, it's certainly pretty impressive
2: in your opinion, are the Bearcats
0: the favorites to win the AAC? Uh, I mean, obviously they're the highest ranked right now. UC, I, I think looking at where things are right now, probably because UCF lost and, and Memphis has already lost. I think those three teams coming into this were the top three programs. And obviously SMU looks really good. UC's got a tough game against Tulsa this weekend. But just going entering the season, I think you put those three together and you can make a case for any one of them. At least as things stand right now, you know, UC, I think, certainly has to be be the favorite moving forward, not to suggest that it'll be an, an easy road for them because, you know, the only conference team they played is USF, who is not very good. They still have Tulsa, SMU, Memphis, Houston, UCF. They they got the music schedule coming up, so if they get there, they're going to earn it. But I think you have to view them as the favorites right now.
1: Are you worried um, more about UCF or Memphis or SMU based on what you've seen this season?
0: If I were. If I were the Bearcats, I would be worried about SMU and UCF because what they've struggled with so far this year is on the offensive end. They haven't got a great quarterback play from, from Desmond Ritter who's in his third year starting. And they've, you know, frankly started to put up points. They have what looks like the makings of a, of a really good, you know, top 10, maybe even top five defense in college football i think they'll the country in interceptions right now they they haven't necessarily played a an offense like smu or ucf that can put up points in a hurry but i think the biggest impediment for them for the bearcats will be can they win in a shootout can they win a game where they have to score over 30 points holding a team like smu or ucf to 28 points is actually a, a pretty good standard for a defense but the offense is going to have to make up for that so you know tulsa will be a tough game Memphis will be a tough game. Houston looked pretty good in their first game against Tulane, but I think that the, looking at how the season has gone thus far, those those two games against SMU and UCF, I think should be the ones that maybe scare, scare UC the most.
1: Justin Williams is here with us. He covers the Cincinnati Bearcats for the Athletic. When you look at the defense, is the secondary the strength of this team?
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, certainly that was all the talk coming into the season. They got James Wiggins back, um, big-time safety, who missed all of last year with injury, and and Ahmad Gardner uh, was a cornerback, American honors as a freshman and and has had a bunch of hype coming into the season. So the secondary is really strong. Um, It definitely has the biggest names. I think the defensive line is really deep and really solid without maybe some of those marquee names compared to the secondary. Honestly, what I've been most impressed with So far this year, though, has been the linebacking core, mainly Jarrell White, who played a bunch for him the past couple years but was kind of the the only known quantity coming into this year, and and he's been the best player on that defense. So I I still think the the secondary is going to grab the headlines, especially if Wiggins and Gardner continue to make plays. But it's it's really, I think, at all three levels that they've shown how good that defense can be. And certainly any success they've had at, at any part of that is, you know, been aided by, by the other positions. So secondary is probably the, the biggest names, but I honestly think they're pretty strong at all three levels.
2: Do you think a uh, defensive coordinator, Marcus Freeman is going to get a head coaching job next year?
0: He's going to get offers. He's already gotten offers, you know, whether it was head coaching jobs or, you know, big time um, power conference coordinator jobs, you know, the, the kind of the funny thing was after a very public courting of fickle by Michigan state, then when they hired Mel Tucker, Mel Tucker, you know, publicly tried to hire Marcus Freeman as, as his defensive coordinator and, and Freeman state put again. So he's gotten plenty of attention. He's going to get a lot more moving forward. You know, it's kind of funny though. He's similar to fickle. First of all, they're very close. He played fickle as his position coach when he was at Ohio state as a linebacker. And I mean, they're just, they're really good friends. And I think, you know, Freeman views him as both a mentor, but also just you know, one of his closest friends in life. So, he understands that, especially if Fickle's going to stay in Cincinnati for a while and he wants to be a head coach, he'll have to go somewhere at some point. But he got a big pay raise this offseason as part of that Fickle extension. And, you know, so I don't think money is necessarily going to be what pulls him away. I think similar to when Fickle ended up coming to UC, Freeman understands, like, I have the ability to pick a head coaching job, my first head coaching job, that is going to be the right fit for me. I don't have to rush into it. I don't have to pick a, a job just because the, the first one offered or the most money offered. I can you know, pick one that I feel most comfortable in, my family feels most comfortable in. And so I think he definitely learned and, and took a lot of that from Fickle. And he, when when that opportunity comes up, it could be this offseason. It could be two years, three years, whatever. But I, I just don't think that he's in a rush to jump at something just so he can go be a head coach next year.
2: What does quarterback Desmond Ritter mean to this team?
0: I mean, you know, he's. I think he's won 25 games. Um, at this point you know and he's in his third year starting he, he's definitely a leader in the locker room he has a bunch of respect um, you know from from teammates and coaches he's an, he's one of those interesting guys where he was not a, a fickle regime recruit he was recruited under uh, Tommy Tuberville he redshirted his first year uh, when fickle came aboard but he's just kind of emerged as, as a leader on the team and what's been disappointing this year is he just has not played well um it, honestly it's was probably his best year statistically was his redshirt freshman year he won rookie of the year in the conference took a little bit of a step back last year as a sophomore had some injuries and then to start this year he's just been inconsistent and inaccurate and, and it, it's frustrating you know i know for him and, and for the team because they saw him this offseason. They've seen him in practice. You know what he's able to do when he plays. His potential just haven't been able to put that together on the field so far this year. And it, it, honestly, it's kind of been just the biggest hurdle and, and roadblock for, for the team so far. But they certainly seem to have a, a lot of faith and, and confidence in him moving forward. And uh, I don't know if he'll necessarily remain in place the rest of the year if, if his play doesn't improve. But they they haven't throwing them under the bus or made any talk about making quarterback changes at this point.
1: So you mentioned that Desmond Ritter has struggled, and anybody that's watched those games I mean, can see that. But do you think it's a byproduct of just not having enough playmakers on the offensive side of the ball?
0: No, I, mean, I think you could make that argument last year, specifically a wide receiver, but they've completely overhauled that room they brought in um a couple big time transfers including michael young from notre dame and jordan jones from arkansas they brought in a really good crop of freshmen they had a four-star jaden thompson who had originally committed to uh, illinois who they brought in you know they lost josiah to the to the nfl he went to the packers but they have uh, you know three really good tight ends same thing they lost michael warren who left early to go to the nfl but they have a good stable of running backs so the the pass blocking has improved on the offensive line All of the pieces around him, um, and just on offense in general, have have improved from from last year, I think, whether you're you're, you're looking at the new addition's wide receiver or just kind of the depth of talent at some of those positions, which again, it just adds to kind of some of the uncertainty or frustrations over over why the quarterback play hasn't elevated
1: with. Has James Hudson uh, been as good as advertised? Has he solidified that offensive line for Cincinnati? I think
0: so. Definitely pass blocking. You know, they they were hoping to have him last year, and, and then everything went down with him not getting the waiver, and, and they really hurt from it. They they had some injuries, too, on the offensive line, so they were constantly shuffling guys around. They were the most penalized team in college football last year, and a lot of that was on the offensive line. You know, so far this year, I think they've only allowed four sacks through three games. He's been really solid locking down that left side of the line. It's allowed them to move Darius Harper over to the right side, where, where I think he's more comfortable they didn't really get the running game kind of on track until the the USF win a couple of weeks ago, but I honestly think that was also a credit to some of the work on, on the tackles, that they went more to kind of an off-tackle running scheme as opposed to trying to run in between the tackles. For a kid who obviously came in highly touted at high school but hasn't really played much football in three years i think he's looked really good and I, I just think they're really happy with what he's been been able to do on the left side
1: the last two years mike warren was the the heart and soul of that offense he put up some some huge numbers for the cincinnati bearcats i had high hopes for running back jerome ford and alabama transfer can we expect them to break out eventually this season
0: yeah, I think so. You know, Warren was huge for them the past couple of years, in part because, you know, with some of the injuries they had at running back, they just had to lean on him. There were games where he was getting over 30 carries because they just didn't have any other options. And he really, I think, embodied kind of the mentality and culture that Sickle that was trying to put in place. So, as important as he was on the field in games, just his whole mindset was, was huge for the way this program's turned around. But I also think, you know, they didn't want to do that again where they felt like they had to feed one running back. 30 times in a game or, or where they were only averaging less than 200 yards through the air. So, you know, Jerome Ford's back there and he's got three years of eligibility, including this year. And I think he's going to be their their bell cow and their workhorse, you know, moving forward. But they also have Jared Dokes who's a senior, who's, who's kind of the starter and the leader. They have Charles McClellan back from injury. Who's, more of a speed back who, who they can use in some different ways. And then they have a fourth running back, Ryan Montgomery, who's, who's certainly fourth kind of on the, the depth chart, but who they like and who they trust. So I don't know that calling it a running back by committee is fair. I, I think you see, they see Dokes and Ford as some of those guys who can kind of carry a load, and, and McClellan is more of a change of pace back. Certainly expect one of these games, Ford is, is going to get hot and they're going to ride him and, and he's going to kind of have a, a breakout game. Um, but I don't think it's one of those things where they're going to be feeding one of those guys 25, 30 carries every week. I just don't think they want to take the risk injury-wise that they had to when Mike was really the only one back there last year.
1: Let's get to this week's matchup. According to Bovada, Cincinnati is a three-point favorite versus Tulsa this weekend.
2: Yeah, how do you think this upcoming game with Tulsa will go?
1: Yeah, it's interesting, Uh, you know, Tulsa
0: has, they looked really good against UCF and they've kind of made some scheme changes here the past couple of years, especially on defense to a three three five, which is what Cincinnati has, you know started running last year as well. I don't know that they necessarily molded themselves after Cincinnati, but they kind of have similar mindsets on defense. So in that sense, I think it should be a really interesting game. I do think I think UC should be a little bit concerned about those shootout possibilities against smu and and UCF. If, if it's a game where they're kind of going toe to toe on defense i think they probably feel pretty good about their chances but tulsa's by far the best team they've played so far this year in- including an army team that was ranked number 22 and when, when they came to nipper stadium a couple weeks ago um so it'll it'll be tough i think this is one of those games where they can't afford to have that poor quarterback play they've had the past couple weeks but if they can get Desmond Ritter back on track a little bit, keep the running game moving, and play the way they've been playing on defense, I think they'll still be able to go on the road and pull it out. But, you know, to me, this is going to be their first real test of, of if they are, in fact, this top 10 team who's who's kind of leading the charge in the AAC.
2: Well, can you tell our listeners where they can find your work?
0: Uh, yeah, so um, I, I write for The Athletics. You can go to theathletic.com. I, I actually cover football and basketball there for the Bearcats. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Williams underscore Justin. I'm always putting anything I'm writing out there, um, You know, especially this year with the Bearcats being such a high-profile team. Um, if, if people are interested in checking out what's going on there, I, I would love any eyes that uh, get sent that way.
1: This was another episode of BlitzCast. Thank you for being with us. Take care, everyone.